Hello and welcome to Just Below the Sea Level. I'm Alex and I'm Ben and this is a podcast for people interested in the latest technology, business strategy and most importantly for those of you who want to progress in your career. Every week we discuss with the smartest people in tech their career journeys, their best and worst business decisions and their valuable lessons learned which we pass on to you. This week we speak with Dan Lyles, the current VP of Growth at Drover, XLift and WeWork employee. Hey Dan, thanks for joining us. Hey guys. For those of you who don't know, Dan is currently the Chief of Staff at Drover. Dan, why don't you just start us off by kind of talking through your career to date, starting from university through to what you're doing now. Sure, yeah. Uh, Thanks for having me guys. So my name's Dan. I am originally Hungarian from Budapest. So after high school, I kind of decided that I wanted to live in London because I came to London as as a high school student and I became obsessed with it. So... I sort of started applying to random places and I eventually um, ended up at City University where I did an LLB degree and I sort of did quite well and I, after sort of three years I decided that it wasn't time for work just yet. So I, I tried my luck and I applied for a couple of schools in the States uh, for law school and I got into the University of Chicago. So I moved out there and I um, did a degree, a Master of Laws, which was amazing, learned a lot, met incredible people and um, eventually ended up passing the New York bar. And so basically I had a training contract waiting for me in, 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 um, in London, mm-hmm. but um, I kind of heard about this other route, which is if you join a firm as a US associate, you skip the training contract. So I was like, that sounds right. great, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I joined uh, a firm in capital markets, which okay. is um, an area where specific part of capital markets you need to have a new york qualification to work in london so i joined the team like that and i worked there for two years it was crazy so i worked until probably 3 a.m every single day of my life i had like maybe one out of eight weekends off sometimes i got home at like 10 and i felt like i had the whole afternoon um (laughs) for myself so yeah so after sort of two years i was like okay maybe this is not the best work-life balance so yeah so i I was like okay well and you thought that moving to a startup would provide a better (laughs) work-life balance well so first i actually moved to ropes and gray which is another kind of u.s firm Um, i was like okay maybe it's just a firm maybe other firms have it better so i moved lasted not even a year and i was like okay this is not was that London as well yeah, that was in London too, doing the same exact thing. Uh, and so sort of over this like, you know, sleepless nights in the office, I kind of spent a lot of time thinking about what sort of what next, if not this. And I decided a couple of things. So I felt that I didn't wasn't really having impact on anything important on the deals that I was working on. It was all sort of working on big, massive practices and offering memorandums that no one's ever going to read. Just really meaningless stuff that, is not going to touch anyone. So that was kind of one big motivation. Two, I was working on an obscure financial product called the, called the high yield bond. And I was like, I can't really relate to that to be honest. <laughs> I prefer cities and I prefer cars. Yeah. So I prefer things that you can kind of think about and, and really the more tangible things. So that's another thing. And the, the third thing is really just the bullshit. So I felt that lawyers just love to kind of pretend that everything we do is just so smart and, and all the work that we do is just incredibly intellectual but in actual fact i thought that it was all kind of just easy and and not particularly challenging intellectually more just volume 
and sort of being able to stay awake. And so kind of all of that together, I decided to start looking at potential startups that I could join because, you know, startups, you know, I mean, I was, I was very much of a, a noob and I kind of was reading TechCrunch and mm-hmm. sounded like startups were the, all the rage. So <laughs> why not? So I started thinking about kind of products I personally enjoy using and, and, and like. And so I began talking to Uber, which at the time, this is 2013, was still quite small mm-hmm. in the UK. And then I mentioned to a friend who I saw worked at Lyft in the States that, hey, I'm kind of talking to Uber. Can you give me some tips on, um, you know, how to interview with a startup? And he's like, well, to be honest, like, sure, but we also are expanding to London soon. So why don't you just come work for us instead and interview with us? And I was like, okay, well, that sounds interesting. Let, mm. let me have a look at this Lyft. So yeah, long story short, I interviewed, I got the job. The idea was for me to go out there for three months and then bring Lyft back to London and launch right. it here. So I kind of landed out there and um, turns out that, um, you know, after a couple of months that the whole idea to launch internationally was scrapped. Part of, I mean, I had kind of personal reasons to come back here, but at the same time, I was like, I'm loving this job. I don't really want to leave after just a couple of months. So I, I basically decided to stay. So I did the U.S. expansion for Lyft. Yeah. Uh, it was, I became a member of um, a team called Launch Team. We were about maybe eight to 10 people. And our role was to show up in cities where Lyft did not exist and basically set it up from primarily supply perspective, but also demand. So kind of working on the initial partnerships and, and things like that. And with Lyft, I launched, first started in Miami. So that's kind of where I trained. And then I spent a couple months in um, around San Francisco, so in the South Bay, where we kind of had an issue with lack of demand. Then I moved to New York City and launched New York. So that's when you were telling us about your Airbnb. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I must have been one of their kind of most popular customers or sort of um, top customers for the year because I spent 300 nights out of 360 in Airbnbs. It's <laughs> a nice, nice bit of savings on rent. You know, obviously Lyft were kind of going through some troubles in terms of launching and you. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. Like the, the Taxi and Limo Commission were threatening to shut you yep, down. Mm-hmm. You were looking to launch Queens in Brooklyn, despite them saying it would be illegal to do so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you guys kind of navigate that? Yeah, it was insane, basically, in short. So <laughs> so we kind of built up a, a decent kind of founding driver base, as we, as we kind of call, uh, call them. And we hosted this thing called Founding Driver Hangout, which is where you kind of evangelize the driver community and you, you prepare them for launch, explain them, kind of answered all their last questions, etc. And it was just an incredible event. It was a really cool venue. Um, John Zimmer came to talk and it was, you know, it was something that we were really excited for it to happen. And then the next day, it was all kind of off the table because wow, wow. we got, you know, we got threatened by authorities that basically like, Drivers would get arrested. It's just, it just and all kinds of things would happen, and it just we just weren't kind of prepared for. So yeah, so basically we had to tell them, sorry, but this is not happening. You're, wow, yeah. you can't work for us. It was sad, and it was kind of obviously a massive mm-hmm. buzzkill. But at the same time, it was um, interesting because overnight we also decided that we would then go the kind of Uber way and onboard professional drivers, so licensed drivers in New York. And so we kind of went to brunch and. Um, the head of launch was like, okay, so your job now is to sign up all these bases in New York. And there was like a list of a hundred bases. Bases are basically the, the term that um, minicab companies are called bases okay. in New York. And so, yeah, so basically like we 
started hailing cabs and Ubers and drove to um, bases and started negotiating with base owners and trying to convince them to bring their drivers on board and offering mm-hmm. them referral bonuses per driver, etc. So over time, we managed to build up, you know, a, a, a decent base of, um, of drivers. And then we kind of switched the platform on after a couple of weeks. And that was also a little bit of a disaster. So I don't know if you guys remember this or saw this but basically so Lyft the way Lyft used to do marketing is they we showed up in a city built up a a, a supply base and then made a platform free to use for like two weeks so everybody got 50 free rides it's called pioneer program and so we launched that pioneer program in New York just like we did in every other city except New York is insane and it exploded and within you know five minutes there were 10 million requests and the platform was basically down like there was there were no wow. drivers ever so it was a horrible experience for a lot of for a lot of people and uh, people you know tweeted about it and wrote articles about it etc so that was not great but over time I think sort of we realized New York was a different kind of beast and um, we needed to invest both in supply and demand to kind of make the marketplace work. So we started offering pretty crazy referral bonuses to drivers to mm-hmm. sort of bring their friends on board. Obviously, it's a pretty insular community, so referrals were always a, a great way to attract more drivers. Yeah. And so, yeah, that exploded. We were, at some point, we were onboarding 700 drivers a day, things like that. So it was just uh-huh. something else. And then sort of at the same time, the company hired a CMO that began spending on um, sort of demand side marketing as well, rather than sort of going the crazy pioneer way, which is releasing the free platform, spending money in a bit sort of more sustainable way. And so eventually kind of the, the balance worked out and I think the city is now doing really well for mm-hmm. Lyft. So obviously you were there when Lyft Line uh-huh. launched in San Francisco. Yeah. How did that come about and was that something you were involved in at all? So I was not, intimately involved in it so i can't tell you too much about it we felt i mean the, the kind of the vision of the company was always to fill more seats in each car i mean the ultimate purpose was to kind of you know kill car ownership but along the way the mission was to increase utilization of vehicles on the road and so that was always always kind of a natural evolution of lift mm-hmm. so no one was surprised that was happening it was kind of difficult initially to sell it to drivers and and um, explain to them that this is good for everyone, just not just kind of riders. So you were also there for a few months before you joined Lyft, raised 250 million from Alibaba mm-hmm. and some mm-hmm. others, and then I think the year after that, in 2015, they raised 530 million from Rakuten, the mm-hmm. Japanese e-commerce giant. What did you kind of notice changing? internally across that period given that there was such kind of large raises so definitely hiring just felt like every time so i was on the road like i said uh, traveling non-stop every month or so we were flown back to sf to kind of regroup talk next steps and every time i went back i mean there were just so many new people i didn't know you know so at some point i went to have lunch and i was like i don't know money here so that was the probably the craziest thing Culturally, nothing really changed, if I'm honest. They, I think Lyft's done an incredible job, at least until the point what it's like now. But mm-hmm. until I left, I, I felt that they in, were incredible at maintaining the culture. It's very difficult to make yeah. a, a big raise. It will feel like a startup. Yeah, I mean, I think what's really great about Lyft is it was amazing at being sort of purpose and, and mission-driven. So, And those missions were all th- things that people could easily get behind. So sort of making travel more efficient by and therefore making life easier and cheaper for everyone uh, on the one hand but on the other hand allowing people to basically 
make money and allowing people that otherwise struggle to, to hold down a job. So I think having that strong mission really helped. So in terms of your actual role there as launcher, yeah, what was kind of the environment like as a launcher at Lyft? Did mm-hmm. they give you, you know, a fair amount of autonomy? Mm-hmm. Um, did they, I assume, yeah. just kind of throw you out there and say, launch yeah. this? Yeah. Um, what was that like? Yeah, so um, it sort of changed over time, I would say. So initially it was a lot of autonomy, I would say. So we were just, because I actually was there before the big rebrand that they did when it became Bink. I mean, I, I enjoyed when it was still kind of green. Right? Yeah, it was Bink, big Bink mustache. And it was, um, um, so the logo was green and that was kind of the dominant color. So that was kind of the time when brand wasn't quite as important. So you could basically like print off your own assets in market. For example, like when we were in Miami, I created this uh, flyer with like a lift, um, like um, a sombrero with, um, with um, a pink mustache on it to like indicate where tacos were mm-hmm. at the party and things like that. And then like, you, you know, all sort of that sort of thing was not allowed after a while. Right. Uh, but I mean, that's just kind of a funny yeah. um, anecdote, but, but more generally you lost autonomy in a lot of things after a while. So we were sort of free to text and, and email to basically do CRM with our drivers in market. And then at some point that kind of was no longer allowed yeah. either. You had yeah. to go through uh, official channels. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, as, as the organization scaled, I mean, as, 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 as every company, mm-hmm. you know, processes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so. Okay, cool. Um, so thanks for the questions on Lyft. Let's now talk about your time at WeWork. Um, so you don't mind starting off with telling me about WeWork. For people who don't understand, who haven't heard of WeWork, a bit about what it is. Sure. And also what, what attracted you to join the team? Yeah, absolutely. So WeWork is a New York-based global, I guess, still startup. It provides co-working space for small to enterprise customers. It started in, I believe, 2009, and it's expanded to, I'm actually not sure what the exact number is, but well over 100 buildings. And so what attracted me to WeWork was the crazy growth that it was experiencing. Fortunately, I had to leave Lyft because of visa issues. My visa wasn't gonna get extended, so I kind of looked externally and, and, and decided to look toward other sort of very fast growth companies is how I, I ended up there. I joined the expansion team, which was a team entrusted with the opening of new spaces from project management perspective, but primarily from a commercial perspective. So actually making certain that the these spaces would be filled. And so I joined and roughly two weeks after I joined that the team actually got basically disbanded slash axed. So, um, so it got folded into another team. And so... The kind of the, the role that was initially going to be quite broad ended up be- becoming a lot narrower and um, ended up being focused almost entirely on sales. So I kind of opened um, Spitalfields, which is, I think, the third building yeah. building, building in London. Yeah. And then that's kind of where I trained. And then I, I led the, the opening of Oldgate and then Old Street as well. My role was essentially making sure that the, comp- the building full by the time we mm. launch. So it was a crazy sales uh, hustle. All day, every day, day and night. Speaking to lots of startups. Nonstop startups, larger customers, individuals. It was great because, to be honest, I had never done sort of direct like sales before. I'd done biz dev type stuff, but I never did like okay, like you know, closely tracked like sales. It was, to be honest, one of the most amazing things I've ever learned, and I'm so grateful for having picked up that skill because you know you need to be selling in any kind of biz dev type role, but also 
You need to be selling yourself in interviews. You need to be selling um, my skill. Whatever yeah. you're doing in life, you basically have to be selling. So it's a great skill to pick up, and, and, and I really enjoyed it. And I frankly got a kick out of like closing big deals, but ultimately just. I, my every single day was the same. I mean, I, I delivered the same pitch, thinking about all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. except the pitch itself. Okay. After a while, so um, I decided that it wasn't really eventually the right place for me to stay, and I wanted to learn a lot more. And I felt that I really still lacked, you know, a lot of the kind of startup skills, startup generally skill set that that I wish to have. And so yeah. I decided that I really wanted to experience the early stage world, and that's how I got to Drover. Okay. Yeah. Did you ever go to the WeWork summer party? Did they used to do? So another summer party, I went to the Winter Summit, okay, which was yeah. similar uh, in New York. They're like cult icon. Uh, it was. Parties, it was. Yeah. It was. They were pretty, pretty awesome. I've heard. Uh, so some of my friends have been to these parties. And, yeah. And they, they were from week and like yeah. they absolutely well, it's absolutely entertaining. Yeah. And everyone, I think I had five friends who went. Every single one of them came back to me. They felt there was a real sort of cult culture, and everyone yeah. was really looked up to the CEO. Yeah. absolutely love working at the companies. Is that how it felt while you were there? Absolutely. So um, there, we work really feel strongly about living their values. And at the time, sort of the CEO would sometimes show up in, in London and randomly stop people in the building and be like, seven values. And if you didn't know, <laughs> he was very pissed. Really. So, um, but, but I mean, you know, other than really reinforcing the values, um, I think it was down to the founder, Adam, who's mm. incredibly... Um, charismatic incredible speaker by far the best speaker I've ever encountered in my life he could sell anything I mean I had already kind of decided to leave by the time I was at one of his events and speeches and, and I genuinely walked away thinking holy <laughs> shit what am I I should stay wow um, he was just so magnetic and powerful mm-hmm. in his delivery that um, I think that was a big part of um, it's really like one of a kind yeah. type founder I would say so in your time since yeah. 2005, what was it like working in this high-growth environment compared to Lyft? Was there lots of similarities? Or was there... Yeah, so it was rather similar, actually. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I was not at, not in kind of one of the main markets. I was in London, which was definitely a kind of a growth market. But just the level at which new spaces were were kind of um, launching and um, more and more people were talking about WeWork. We actually just had, we had just gotten someone to look after brand and marketing. And there were all these sort of big articles in the Evening Standard and other publications. And suddenly it was something that people started to kind of, it became a household name over, yeah. over, sort of <laughs> over the period that I was there. It was already in New York at the time. And um, I think it became that that sort of period, and definitely is now. I think it looks like we work as such a diverse sort of yeah. getting some fitness involvement in their retail spaces. Yeah, um, I think they acquired a coding. That's right. Firm Flatiron. Is it? Do you think they're going to continue to diversify? Is that all part of their big grant living? Yeah. So I think um, so. I think that the absolute key purpose of the company is bringing people together. And so the first vertical expansion was the living spaces mm-hmm. we live. I don't know if you guys are familiar, yeah. but they have um, cool living spaces in New York and D.C., which are basically luxury like halls of residence, to be honest. To be honest, very pricey. So yeah. you have to be um, making a decent amount of money to afford it. But um, so that was really um, the first one. And I think, you know, they're just a very hungry company whatever opportunity is kind of lie in front of them, they want they want to grab them. So Meetup um, is another one. Uh, I think it, it very nicely fits into the 
um, the, the, the community and bringing people together vision. And, and if I'm not mistaken, although I'm not actually 100% sure that this is the case, but I think that a lot of meetups sometimes struggle to find venues. So we were thought that they would be a great kind of solution to that problem. With Flatiron, I just feel that being the coding school, I, I feel that um, it must have just been, you know, a great personal fit with, with the company. And they felt that um, in terms of potential customers for Flatiron, WeWork members would be great. You know, WeWork can provide the space for Flatiron to expand internationally. And I know that they're looking at London, for example. Um, I, I guess that, that that was just another kind of synergy that, that made sense. I'm not sure there's a ton of very sort of, there isn't some kind of exact route that they're envisaging. I think sure. they're kind of looking at opportunities on the side and yeah. seeing, seeing what makes sense, what doesn't, and kind of go one by one. So you've been at Drover now for about two, two years. years. Maybe just talk us through kind of what the company's like, what your mission is, what you guys do, for those of you who yeah. haven't, haven't heard about it, um, and what you've been doing to date. Yeah, sure. So uh, I joined Drover as first um, business employee. Um, second, it was really the two of us at the time. And I sort of walked into a company whose idea at the time was to create a peer-to-peer sharing platform for Uber drivers. So there's a lot of owner drivers out there, obviously only utilize their cars part of the time. It's actually, I think, 36% of the time. So the rest of the time, the companies are, the cars are sitting idle. So the idea was naturally to find other sort of newcomers to the market, new drivers, to make use of that access capacity and, and at the same time allow owner drivers to make extra money while they sleep. So that was the initial idea and it failed for two reasons. So reason one is it was brutally difficult to establish liquidity. So we would end up with a car in East London, the guy in West London, we were essentially asking the guy to travel to East London, pick up the car, drive for eight hours, then drop the car back to the same place, then take the tube home to, yes. where, he, to where he lived. <laughs> and the drivers were like, yeah, we're not doing that. So that was problem number one. Problem number two was that everybody wanted to drive at the same time. So sometimes cars are made available Monday through Thursday and not Friday to Sunday, but that was the only time when people actually did cars. So for all these reasons, we basically began really listening to the customer and, um, and decided to iterate. We kind of kept hearing that everybody preferred to just have the convenience of having the car for the full week. And therefore we shifted to weekly rentals. This month we could no longer work with owner drivers, but had to transition to fleet owners who had cars available full time. So we started bringing on small fleets initially. And then as we kind of grew, we brought on much larger kind of fleets as well, uh, including international as well as regional car rental companies, OEMs as well are among our partners. So that's kind of where the company is today. About six months ago or so, we expanded to the insurance space. So prior to that launch, we included insurance in every booking already. We worked with a third party company to kind of obtain certificates to the driver, for the drivers from. It was a very difficult process, um, involved a lot of admin. It was quite expensive because of all the middlemen. And so we decided to launch a digital product that was very easy to get, uh, no kind of no hassle, cheaper because, of, because we went direct to the underwriter. Yeah, it's just a bet better for our drivers, better for us as a business. So we, 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 we launched that business line about six months ago. And so that's another thing we're doing. And so we're now looking toward sort of further vertical opportunities. We've really proven this car as a service product in the private hire slash Uber world. And we're now taking this idea and uh, introducing it to potentially the B2C world. Okay. Nice. So starting to look at consumers 
like us essentially. Yeah. So I guess like competition for you guys are, I guess currently things like Zipcar and Drivey, um, companies like that. Do you see that as an issue as you guys are expanding? Yeah, so I'd actually challenge you on that. I'm not sure that they're actually competition because someone who needs a car sort of for random rides around around town is not really the kind of person that we're looking for. You know, we're looking for people that want to experience car ownership without the kind of the shackles of car ownership, if you will. Drivey, again, is much more focused on short term and specifically travelers um, and sort of weekend trips and things like that and aspirational type use cases. And that's not really us. So, yeah, I don't, I don't really see them as competition. I mean, I think they are in, in the sense that all mobility is and TFL is as well, but uh, sure. but not quite as closely. So you guys are a better option for, say, if I want to rent a Lambo for a month, I'll go with uh, Drover. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> okay, That's a good cool. one. So quick question here. What's been one of your toughest days at Drover? Toughest days. Okay. Wow. So I think inherent in a marketplace is the lack of quality control. So you just can't really always guarantee quality because you're not controlling supply. And so very often, you know, when something would go wrong, for instance, our kind of Stripe plugin broke and we double charge drivers um, across the board, for instance. And, you know, apologizing for a mistake you didn't make and genuinely feeling bad for drivers because this is their livelihood, you know, they every kind of bound that they make is they calculate that into their budget, etc. And that was a very hard, you know, essentially having to continuously apologize for things you yeah. <laughs> you really couldn't help. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that's tough. So interesting stuff about Drover. Um, now I'm going to speak briefly about Korea. Um, yeah. A quick fire round. Yeah. So you seem to have had a lot of it, really interesting experience. What key action do you recommend an employee can use to progress fast and do well in fast moving? Sure. I guess the first thing would be choose the startup that you're going to work wisely. So before you even join, just be careful with what kind of startup you join. I, I researched our founders a lot, you know, and I saw that they had amazing track records. You know, if you're being offered a ton of equity, by a ton, I mean like five to 10% as an employee, you're probably, you know, better off running because you're getting that much, then it's unlikely the founders value that equity too, too highly either. So I guess just, yeah, just be kind of thoughtful and smart about which companies you join, I would say. And then once you've joined, I guess like my biggest learning is uh, don't be afraid not to have expertise. Just kind of go for it and teach yourself stuff. There's resources out there everywhere to really learn new stuff. And so just don't be afraid to pick up new skills and use them. Just really kind of just start and, and, and once you've started, you'll figure it out. And, and if you get stuck, ask for help, even external if need be. So that's another thing. Um, another, I think possibly the most important learning after that is former Google and Facebook exec. I forget her name. It's um, her name is. Yeah, so it's, it's her name is Molly Graham. So she's a um, sort of Facebook Google veteran. And, and she has this great article slash post about it's called give away your Legos. The idea is that. In an early stage startup, when you join very early, and obviously you own everything. I own sales, customer service, marketing, basically product initially. And as the company grew and and, um, and the team grew, I wasn't able to focus on everything anymore. So I often had to basically let go of certain areas. And sometimes that can feel tough because you know, you're know you used to managing everything and it's hard to kind of let go of that. But actually, um, it's just a natural pro- progression of, of, a, of, a, of a startup that you, you have to 
just accept that you have to fire yourself sometimes from, mm-hmm. from a job and focus on the next thing and then fire yourself from that again and then focus on the next thing. And I think um, it can be tough if you're, if, if you're not prepared for that. So after life, you sort of drove it, you sound like you're really enjoying yourself and yeah. growing in the role, which is awesome. But with, you know, what, can you tell us a little bit about your future plan? Does that include ever launching your own company? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think... I, I really love it at Drover right now. I'm, I'm still growing and I'm learning a lot and I'm, I'm moved roles a lot. And I think I, I kind of suspect that will continue. But once the company fully exits, I'm hoping to, after that, launch my own company and um, kind of learn, use what I've learned at Drover and uh, try my own thing. So that's kind of one route. And that's the, that's the dream. What spaces interest you if you were going to do that? So for, for the longest time, I was kind of um, interested only in tech. And then now I've kind of been looking outside that as well. So I love food. So food food is one area. And then fitness as well. So specifically, actually, perhaps the, the combination of the two, so fit, fitness and nutrition is another one. Another kind of potential route, if, um, if for some reason kind of that doesn't work out, is general management for a startup, potentially for sort of a U.S. startup coming to London or sort of a more, more of a generalist role yeah. in another, another company. A little quick fire round now, a few questions. Just say what, what first comes to mind. Yeah. So what's your favorite tool in the workplace? Slack. Um, really easy to communicate with the team, easy to kind of um, infuse a little bit of culture in it. What's your worst habit in the workplace? It's got to be freaking out when I have too much to do. So just sort of, I've got, you know, 18 things that are equally important and I'm just like, I spend 10 minutes freaking out over which one to get started on rather than just starting on, you know, knocking them out one by one. Okay. And which book are you reading at the moment? Um, it's actually uh, Work Rules by Laszlo Bach, who's the SVP of People Operations at Google. So I'm, I'm currently looking after people stuff at Drover, I'm kind of building that fu- function from the ground up. And um, I decided that if I am to look somewhere, I'd, I'd like to look to Google mm-hmm. on how to, how to do this. So I'm trying to kind of learn and follow a lot of the things that they've learned there. Okay, great. Finally, what's your favorite podcast and maybe a couple of others? Because you said to us earlier, you listened to a few. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, what got me into podcasts was Serial. And then I actually love This American Life, who are the people that made Serial. It's just really interesting, sometimes beautiful stories about People, not just in America, but everywhere in the world. Some crazy situations they encounter and how they get out of it. Extraordinary people. I love How I Build This as well. It's a good one. You, can, you learn really cool stuff about really cool companies. And what I love about it as well is that it really kind of reinforces this this learning that I, I, I have from Drover is that um, you just have to get started and then, you know, and then the next step is always easier than, than, um, than the one before. So... Well, uh, thanks, Daniel. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today and talk with us. And best of- thanks very much. Thanks, thanks for having thanks. me. Cheers. Cheers, guys.